We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Here's a Christmas story that may be especially relevant for our times. It's about a truce. Christmas in the Trenches is a song about a short ceasefire on a French battlefield in Flanders during World War I. Atlanta-based singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist John McCutcheon composed and released it in 1984. It has since joined the holiday music canon, and he joined us in the studio to play the song and tell us about its origins. John, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. This is such a powerful story. Can you give us sort of the, the overarching arc of it before we hear much of your song? This was the first Christmas Eve of World War I, and everybody thought they would be home. Little did they know that they were going to be ensconced in trench warfare, making almost literally no progress for the next five years. Mm. Um, and there was a, a sort of a confusion about what to do about Christmas Eve. Uh, many of the Germans uh, that the... Um, that the English were fighting had actually been working in England until the war broke out. And then they came back and they joined the Kaiser's army. And so all of a sudden you were across no man's land from people who you might've had, you you might've known rub shoulders with. Well, the, um, and it's not even a legend. It's a historical fact that, um, across no man's land, um, a a German soldier started singing Christmas carols. And pretty soon all the other Germans joined in. Uh, The English, of course, recognized what these were. And when the Germans stopped their carol, they answered with one of their own. In the song, I just sort of choose God rest you merry gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes back and forth like this until finally the Germans sing Stille Nacht, which is Silent Night. And it was originally written in German, Mm -hmm. of course. The English recognize this and start singing along. And here were these two groups of enemies singing a common song in two different languages the the poignancy of that could not have been lost. In in your song, you say, in two tongues, one song filled up that sky. The Germans ventured out first, and they came out with a Christmas tree lit up with candles, as was the tradition in those days, and a truce flight. And that prompted the English to come out at first. You know, is this a trick? What is this? But I like to think that Christmas prevailed, I think the common thought is that there was a small group of soldiers who did this, you know, a couple of dozen. But in fact, the trenches went on for over 400 miles. And Stanley Weintraub, who wrote uh, the definitive uh, historical book on this called Silent Night, uh, claims that there were between three and 400,000 men who took part in this. Ironically, one of the units, one of the German units that refused to to participate was was led by Lieutenant Adolf Hitler. Oh my goodness. And the following day, uh, and they had, you know, they traded, as the song says, they traded cigarettes and pictures and chocolates and they had a soccer game. Yes. <laughs> There's actually a famous photo of that. Oh yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, when I first heard this song, the genesis of me writing this song was, it was 1984, it was May, May 4th, 1984, 
Um, and I was two weeks away from going into the studio. My record company, had Rounder Records, had asked me to do a Hammer Dulcimer Christmas album. The mm-hmm. Hammer Dulcimer was very popular. I'd had a couple of very successful Hammer Dulcimer albums. They said, great, why don't you do a Christmas album? And I would suspect that they expected Hark the Herald Angels Sing on Hammer Dulcimer. And I was really not interested in doing anything at all like that. So I'd gotten together some interesting musicians and some really unusual stuff, but I felt like there was something missing. On the 4th of May that year, I was playing in Birmingham at UAB in the concert auditorium there, and I was in a backstage dressing room waiting for the show to begin, and the door almost explodes open and in literally swept this old African-American woman pushing a broom. I recognized by her accoutrements and her uniform that she was a janitor. And we were both surprised to be facing one another because she thought it would be empty. I thought I would be left alone. But we started visiting and telling jokes and eventually telling stories. And um, finally, when it was time for one more, she told me this story. And she, pre- you know, she pre- prefaced it by saying, this ain't no joke. It hadn't got a punchline. Hmm. And she told me this story, and it was the combination of not expecting something that wasn't funny and that was really touching and powerful. And this was not someone that I thought would have anything to say about World War I in the mm-hmm. story there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did that even come up? I have no idea. Mm. She just said, I said, okay, time for one more. Tell me your best one. And this... I think a lot of people tuck away their their most precious thing until someone maybe makes it okay for them or asks them. It's amazing what people will do if you simply ask. Mm-hmm. And she told me this, and it was just astonishing. And then I had to go out. Uh, and I played what was probably the most distracted first set I've ever played. <laughs> came back and during the intermission wrote the song. During the intermission? During the intermission. It just poured out. There are there's a saying among writers and it doesn't matter whether you're a songwriter, a poet, a, an essayist, a novelist that there are some things you write and other things you simply write down. Mm. Um it takes work but you have to be ready for you know I kn- I somehow knew oh this is what was missing from this album. I had actually heard this story before, many, many years before, thought it was apocryphal. I wasn't even sure it wasn't at this particular point in time. But I was quickly educated that, you know, oh no, my my grandfather was there. Here is a Xerox of his diary. Mm. And in Denmark at a festival, I was approached by four men, who German men, who claimed that they had been a part of this. Let's hold it right here yep. and hear, um, let's just hear the first, the first phrase of, of Christmas in the Trenches by John McCutcheon. He's kind enough to play it here in our studio. My name is Francis Tolliver. I come from Liverpool. Two years ago the war was waiting for me after school. To Belgium and to Flanders, to Germany to Fought for king and country I love dear 
Christmas in the trenches where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were still, no Christmas songs were sung. Our families back in England were toasting us that day. The brave and glorious lads so far away. Well, I was lying with my messmates on the cold and rocky ground when across the lines of battle came a most peculiar sound. Says I, now listen up, my boys. Each soldier strained to hear as one young German voice sang out so clear. How did you come up with the idea at that time of Francis Tolliver? You know, the one you needed, obviously, a character. You needed something to hang it on. You know, it was 1984, and um, I was about a dozen years into my career. I started off as a teenager writing songs. I wrote lots of really awful (laughs) songs, which as I entered my 20s and had become a student, I was raised in Wisconsin and fell in love with Southern music and came south to learn it. And I was learning how to play instruments. I was learning these traditional songs. And then in the midst of a performance, I would sing some wonderful traditional song. And then I would sing this little silly thing I had written. And it was apparent to me that there were some secrets that traditional music held that I needed to learn to be a decent songwriter. I started playing the guitar by uh, thanks to a, um, a book I had gotten out of the, the public library uh, entitled Woody Guthrie Folk Songs. Mm, There's the great place to start. And I had no idea who Woody Guthrie was when I was 14. I mean, why would I? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a guitar instruction book. And as I went through, I learned quite by accident about telling stories. And this was the thing that traditional music taught me, was how to, how to clear away all the extraneous stuff, get it right down to what this is about. What Woody Guthrie taught me was have a, have a voice, mm-hmm. have a character, tell it from the first person. You know, uh, come take a trip with me to 1913, to Calumet, Michigan, to the Copper Country, or, or it was the early spring and the strike was on. Mm-hmm. They run us miners out of doors. And you were right there. And so it just, I made up the name Francis Tolliver. Mm-hmm. I gave him a context. I come from Liverpool. Um, I painted him into World War I. From there, it was all the narrative of, of what had happened. But I needed to have an, invi- an, an invitation to the listener to come inside the story. And it contains great truths that I didn't, that I didn't want to spell out. Well, you, that's it. I mean, it, it made me think of, um, do you know that it's a Yeats poem, an Irish airman foresees his death. You know, yes. he says something like, I'm, I, those who I fight, I do not hate. Those who I guard, I do not love. Mm-hmm. And th- that came across to me, you know, that sort of idea of like, in the morning, after we had this night of reverie and the, and the smoke clears and the daylight is out, Someone's in my sights again. There's, there, there's a way that... And some, but something has changed. Right. Um, that you ask that question, who is in my sights? Yes, and, and it's the anonymity of war that, that makes us 
demonize and try to kill someone that we don't know and that we have no individual beef with. We have been told, this is your enemy. Go kill them. That's your job. And the interesting thing about this song is the many lives it has taken on. Yeah, tell me about more about that. You know, you've been playing this since 1984. I mean, I'm I sure every time you get on stage, people want to hear this song. This is your song, your well, story. Well, you know, I actually got a request in, in Hartford, Connecticut one time saying, please don't sing that song. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> it's pretty heartbreaking. Um, the most heartfelt and constant feedback I get is from veterans and their families. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I got a letter uh, just last week from a fellow out in California who said, "I, you know, years ago I was doing a, a, a VFW Christmas party, and I just took a chance and sang this song, and I really thought, well, if the, you know, they might not like this." And and he said afterwards, every single person came up to me, from general to buck private, and their families, and uh, now I get hired every year just to sing this song. I think you don't often, in the news reports, in the history books, certainly, in the big movies, you don't often see the story of the average soldier mm-hmm. and, and the people who are out there. Um, you know, the, and you only see it from the perspective of you know, the ones who call the shots, right. as the song says. Right. So I think to have... Um, a story told through the voice of a so, of a just a common soldier, um, and, and what's really interesting as well is, you know, in in teaching world history these days, when when I was growing up, all our fathers had fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, Vietnam is as far from our children as World War One was from us. That's uh, it's, uh, it's staggering a, to think of. It, it is. And as, as these conflicts get more numerous and more removed from our consciousness and from our news and the lessons we learn, it's shocking to me how often a social studies teacher will come up to me and say, your song is the one thing that we teach in World War I because we don't have time mm-hmm. to teach everything um, and I thought, well, if you've got to teach one thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just for students or high school students or middle school students, but you've also written a children's book about the truce. So what was the thinking behind that decision? Well, it was, uh, it was a, something I always thought I wanted to do. Um, Little Brown had put out a, a, a picture book based on my song, Happy Adoption Day. And they just used the lyrics. So I thought, well, somebody's just going to use the lyrics. I won't really have to work. Yeah. And uh, the woman who is now my wife, Carmen Agraditi, um, was an acquisitions editor for Peachtree Publishers right here in, in the Atlanta area. And she said, she saw me perform this and she said, this would be a fantastic children's book. Mm-hmm but you have to write a story. I said, oh, man. She said, you have to do something that, that children will get inside of. The main thing is, I think this is a story that children ought to grow up knowing. And it gave, it gave me an opportunity in the author's note and the accompanying CD to expand upon the context of all this for those kids and those families 
for whom the book and and or the song raised questions because hopefully that's what happens when you encounter something. A kid will say, well, what were they fighting about? Mm -hmm. Or what happened after that? Or any of the myriad of questions that, that might come up. You know, when I started singing this song, most Americans had never heard this story. Right. And uh, so I kind of consider it mission accomplished if, if this is something that when someone is listening to this radio broadcast, they go, oh, yeah, I know that story. I just thought, okay, good. That's Atlanta-based folk musician John McCutcheon. You'll find more information about his music and about his gig at Eddie's Attic on February the 1st at his website, folkmusic.com. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought. And on each end of the rifle, we're the same. <laughs>